So when uh, my wife and I were married, we actually were engaged on the Giant Dipper roller coaster uh, in Santa Cruz on the boardwalk. Just as we were dropping down uh, on the drop-off, I proposed to her, and um, she screamed yes. And uh, we got off of the roller coaster and went to the little booth where they sell the pictures, the photos, right? And I don't know about you, but I've never wanted to buy those because they're always way more expensive than they should be. Um, the ones that they take when you're dropping down the, the biggest drop-off and, and you can pay for it right there. And we looked at it and we thought, should we get it? And then suddenly it dawned on me, wait a second, that's the very moment that I just proposed to my wife. Yes, I'll fork over the extra $10 to get this picture. And, and this is a common way for us to think. Something remarkable happens in life, a moment that will change everything, and you're just not really dialed in. It hasn't sunk in. It hasn't connected to the parts of who you are. It hasn't really changed the moment. And, and in this series, which is called Come Alive, Exploring the Power of the Resurrection for Our Daily Lives, we are exploring what it means to let the resurrection of Jesus Christ sink into our lives on a day-to-day kind of basis uh, so that it changes and transforms the way we think about what previously might have just been the normal mundane things of life. We want it to sink in. Wendell Berry has this phrase, he says in one of his poems, he calls it practicing the resurrection. What does it mean to practice the resurrection in daily life? So would you open with me to 1 Corinthians 15, and let's explore this topic together. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. If you do not have a Bible, raise your hand, we'll hand one to you. Just let us know, raise your hand, we'll hand a Bible to you. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. If you have your own Bible or your phone, open up to that. Does anybody have the page number for the 1 Corinthians in, in that Bible that we hand out? 665. Just to help if you are not used to looking it up. All right, now we're picking up here in verse 50. I need to tell you that Paul has been writing about the resurrection in chapter 15 for 49 verses already. So he's pretty excited. This is sort of the climax of his sort of unfolding of the the inner workings of resurrection. So we're going to pick up in verse 50, so we kind of have to carry with that sense of emotion as well. He says, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immor- on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let me ask you, just on that last verse, if you've ever felt like your life is being lived in vain. The writer of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament loved this theme and talked about it throughout his entire book. He says in Ecclesiastes 1-2, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, he goes on to say. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Which is a good definition for vanity. Something that disappears, that has no lasting power. And I wonder if sometimes when you're at work, you hear the hollow sound of the wind of vanity. As you repeat the same tasks or butt up against the same challenges and ask yourself, will this ever change or will this ever have a lasting effect on the world? Or maybe you feel the howling of the wind of vanity when you are in school and you are pulling an all-nighter and you're wondering who is even going to read the work that you produce and does it matter? Or maybe you feel the howling wind of vanity when you face difficult relationships, relationships that you have tried time and time again to mend and to heal, and they continually seem to fall into the same pattern of brokenness and pain and suffering. And will it ever change? Maybe you hear that howling wind when you look at a personal problem you've been facing and attempted to overcome year in and year out, and yet you still grapple with, battle with this issue. And it seems like your efforts are in vain. Or maybe you are an idealistic person who's passionate about changing the world and and you've stepped out to make a difference. And and then partway through the fight, you realize that what I'm doing seems not to be changing anything. And yet you want to keep fighting. And yet you wonder, is it all for nothing? Is my effort in vain? Many people that we would say have lived meaningful lives struggled with this sense that what they were doing was possibly in vain. Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa, Abraham Lincoln, Charles Spurgeon, the list could go on and on and on. People we would look back and say, wow, if I could only live a life as meaningful as theirs. And yet they wrestled with what the writer of Ecclesiastes says about all things being vanity and a striving after the wind. Vanity feels like what I'm doing makes no difference in the world. It's like building a sandcastle on the beach. I remember doing that as a kid. We would put so much time into the sandcastle and, and make every edge and corner just so And then the next day we would come back to the beach and it would be gone. No trace. 
had a hard time even figuring out where we had built the sandcastle. Absolutely gone. That's vanity. And in our text this morning, vanity is really linked to death. We have to make this connection. Death is really the ultimate washing away of our lives, right? Like that sandcastle. And we resist it over and over, and, and through various means, we, we have children, and we try to pass on through them and to them what is important to us that it might live on beyond our death. Or we build things, organizations or companies, physical buildings that might live on beyond us, monuments and memorials. But all of these are really just a shadow of immortality. They're not real, true immortality. So when Paul writes in verse 58 that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, it has to cause us to wonder, how can that be so? How can it be so that my life is not lived in vain? Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. And then he goes on to explain the resurrection. We've mostly only partially understood the resurrection, I think. Even those of us who would say that we are Christians and maybe have been pursuing these things for a long time, we have only partially understood the resurrection. Even Christians, this is the case. We assert that Jesus rose. Of course, that's what we're talking about here. We assert that it was a historical event. We remember that in the Scripture, significant historical people are mentioned, Pontius Pilate, many others. Happens at a particular time. Paul certainly believed that the resurrection was a historical event. If you go back in this chapter to verse 14, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. There's that word again. And your faith is in vain. So without the historical nature of the resurrection, all of it is in vain. We understand that through Jesus' death and resurrection, sin and death have been overturned. We go back to Genesis and remember what happened in the garden and Adam and Eve were given this perfect place in which to live, and they were asked not to eat the fruit from the tree uh, that bore the fruit of uh, knowledge of good and evil, but they disobeyed God and decided to take of that fruit, and there's a very poignant moment in the Garden of Eden when uh, Adam and Eve, who are near the tree of life, are shunted away from the tree of life as really an act of God's grace, because were they to eat from the tree of life at that time, there would be a fallen immortality. They would be that, that way broken in sin for all of eternity. And so God in His grace removes them from the presence of that tree of life. And then fast forward all the way to the New Testament and we see Jesus doing something remarkable as pertains to sin and death. He, first of all, on that Good Friday goes to the cross and offers himself, him very, his very self, his very perfect being as a sacrificial atonement, sacrifice of atonement for sin, which was how things had worked all the way through the Old Testament. Sacrifices were made 
perfect sacrifices, sacrifices without blemish to atone for sin. And now in the New Testament, we find the perfect sacrifice Jesus Christ offered on that cross to atone for sin. And, and you remember that death came in because of sin in the Garden of Eden. Now in, in, the, in, the, in the work of Christ, we have the reversal. As Jesus atones for sin and takes care of sin, then the immediate result is what? Death is overcome. His resurrection. And so Jesus is untangling this difficult circumstance that beginning with Adam and Eve, we got ourselves into. Falling away from God, turning away from God, sin and death. And Jesus is turning that all around. And by the way, I would just note that for those of you who are here this morning and you're exploring the things of the faith, we are so glad that you're here. Love that you are present with us and and you don't have to have everything figured out to be a part of this community. We are certainly on a journey together and I just invite you to walk out this journey with us. And if at some point, here's what you're looking for in this journey of faith, is, is to, to, how do you connect with God? How do you reach out? And, and the scriptures teach us that, that, that the hand we offer to God is the hand of faith. And so if at some point, either this morning or in the process of the next uh, weeks or months how, on your journey, you come to that, that place where you are ready to uh, embrace the person of Jesus Christ. The way that you do that is to call to Him in faith to say, Jesus, I believe in You as Lord and Savior. That's, that's the key movement in the Christian faith, is to, is to put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. But you can't do that until you're ready. You can't do that until you've explored it. You can't do that until it's, it's happening because you have come to a place where it makes sense. But you need to know that is a critical piece. And, and this, is, this is what we understand about the resurrection and the importance of it. But here's, what, here's the part that kind of pushes us beyond that and that comes from our text this morning, is that Jesus' resurrection is not merely some historical anomaly, like, oh, there was one person who was raised from the dead and wasn't that unique and, and unlike anything that's ever happened. It turns out that Jesus' resurrection, Jesus Himself, is really just the first fruits of a much wider resurrection that is to come. Jesus is, in a sense, a prototype of what's to come next. His resurrection ends up being the promise of our resurrection. So we can read verse 51 in a different light if we understand that. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. Jesus is not a historical anomaly. He's just the prototype, the first fruits of what's to come. And this new body Paul has been teaching throughout this entire chapter 15 is of superior physical quality to the old one. Now, is that good news for anybody? (laughs) 
This new body is of superior physical quality to the old one. In fact, powerful language he uses and metaphor. He says that this body that we now inhabit is merely the seed, the kernel that gives birth to something much grander. The, the resurrection body is the plant that flowers. You're merely existing in seed form right now of what you will become. That's what he's saying. This was really offensive to the Corinthians, by the way, because they tended to think of the world in, 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 in platonic ways. That they, they thought that the physical things were to be disregarded. They disparaged the material world around them. And they loved to elevate the spiritual things. They thought that, that heaven, that it, reaching true life would be to let go of the physical things and somehow be absorbed into the spiritual. And many of us probably have absorbed that kind of thinking as well. But God's plan is actually to wed the physical and the spiritual together in perfection. C.S. Lewis, Lewis often uses, if you're a reader of C.S. Lewis, you see him often using the rider and the horse uh, or the various creatures that are, are part uh, animal and part human. And it was his way of saying that this is God's intended plan for us as human beings, that our spiritual selves will be perfectly wedded to our physical selves someday. There will be no distinction between the two like we so often experience as our body decays in this life. So heaven ends up being more real. In fact, in, in, the, in, in the book of Revelation, which, by the way, next week we're going to study continuing and ending this series. We're going to be looking at the very last two chapters of the Bible and what heaven is like according to those last two chapters. So I hope you'll be with us. We're going to read the entire Revelation 21-22. It's beautiful, and then we're going to explore. But, but what, what it says and what it talks about is that there's the new heaven and the new earth that's coming. Interesting language. It's not just that, that there's this heaven we go to. It's that the earth itself is renewed. The earth itself is renewed. So we, we have to play with this a little bit. And, and I love what uh, Pastor Franklin said last week about we need artists oftentimes to help us get our minds in the things of heaven. But we have to play with this a little bit. The, the best sunset, I want you to imagine the best sunset that you have ever seen in your life. Okay, where was that? And then I want you to maybe think about um, the, best, the greatest landscape you've ever encountered. You were hiking or you were traveling or you were in an airplane or something and you saw this incredible, gorgeous landscape that just completely overwhelmed your senses. Or maybe the bluest water that you have experienced in your life. I want you to think about all these things. And, and oftentimes we, we're afraid that when we die and we go to heaven, we're going to lose all of that beauty because we're just going to be disembodied bodied spirits wandering around in some misty cloud with harp music, right? Here's what we need to understand. That sunset, that landscape... That water is merely a shadow of what's to come. It only begins to capture. It's just a, the merest contour of what God has in store for us. 
It's just the seed waiting to give birth to the, current, to the whole plant. C.S. Lewis, again, has a, a beautiful way of describing this. He, he, he writes a kind of a fable. He says, imagine that a woman who's thrown in a dungeon, and in that dungeon she has a child, and there's only just a little hole in the top of the dungeon, and the child grows up only being able to see a little bit of light coming in, but never seeing the world at all. And the woman is an artist. And she wants to describe to the child what life is like on the outside of the dungeon. And so she takes out a paper, she has a pencil, and she begins to draw the world. And she makes picture after picture, and she describes all the different pieces of the world. Now this child is beginning to understand what the world is like on the outside of that dungeon through the pencil marks on the paper. But how incredibly overwhelming will it be for that child when he or she finally emerges from that dungeon and sees an actual tree, right? This is what's in store for us. This is what it is like for us. We are merely seeing the pencil descriptions of what is in store for us in the future. This is what resurrection is all about. And so now we read in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. This is when we, this is when we can really say this, right? When we understand death is swallowed up in victory. When it says when we've all experienced this, oh death, where is your victory? Do you see this is a taunt? Paul is taunting death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. And that word is nikos. It's the same word that Nike, you know, so Nike's always about you, Air Jordan, right? I remember when I was growing up, and I, I mean, when you see Michael Jordan jumping from the the, the Three, the free throw line and dunking all the way and Nike and it was victory and everything. That's nothing. Nothing compared to the victory wrought by Jesus Christ on that cross and through that resurrection. So we're going to play a special version of kickball this afternoon. and We've taken black balls and painted a skull and crossbones on them. And they symbolize death. So when you come out to the kickball field and you play kickball, you are going to be kicking death as far as you can. And I can't wait to see how far you can kick death. And it's totally biblical. Because we have the victory in Jesus Christ over death. So bring your big leg and let's kick death this afternoon. All right. Okay, so, so far we've talked about the vanity, vanity in the world. We've talked about victory in Christ. And then we are now going to talk about vitality in life because all of this means something for the way that we live today. And in particular, I want to mention in light of our work and our worship, how the resurrection affects our, and shapes the way that we think about life now. Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a story. He was, he was having trouble finishing The Lord of the Rings, and he feared that he would never finish this incredible work that was in his mind. And could you imagine if he didn't? Wow. Um, we would be missing a huge treasure. So he wrote a short story, I guess, to kind of 
get his, his mind going. He, it, was, it, was, it was called leaf by niggle. Niggle is a word that you use. We don't use it. It's kind of a British thing, I guess, um, when you're just sort of dabbling and, and frittering and you're not really getting anything done. And this, the character's name was Niggle. And Niggle was sort of an insignificant man um, who, I guess he was retired, and he was somebody who loved to paint. And Niggle um, had a dream of painting a, a, an entire tree, a beautiful tree. And it was a, he had a, a way of thinking about it that was just so, and it was to be this gorgeous tree. And he set about painting this tree, but he was really only able to get a leaf done. Because... Interruptions kept happening in his life. In fact, his neighbor, who was particularly needy, kept coming over and asking for help. And, and Niggle felt like he couldn't, he couldn't leave his neighbor in the lurch. And so he would stop and he would get on his bike and go get the doctor for him. And on and on it went. And, and Niggle was trying to get this painting done before he went on a journey. And the journey symbolizes death. And, and one day he's only got the leaf done and the driver shows up, the one who's going to take him on the journey. And Niggle gets into the car, the, the vehicle, and, and, and travels away. Um, and he ends up in a train, and, and the story goes on. But the main point is when he arrives in this new location, he gets off of the train. And he looks, and there's his bicycle sitting right there. This is, I'm a cyclist, so this is a really good thing for me to think about. He's in heaven. There's his bicycle. Yes, I believe it. And he gets on the bicycle and he starts to ride. And somehow the, 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 the landscape that he's riding on is completely familiar to him. He remembers the, 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 the dipping and he remembers the rising of the hill. It's all like he's been there before. And yet there's something more vivid and wonderful about it. And he, he, as he's biking along, he's able to detect the various blades of grass and their uniqueness and their contours as he's riding along on his bike. Everything is more vivid and real. He's riding through a beautiful land and he comes to a tree, and he looks at the tree, and it's his tree, only it's living. The tree that he dreamed of and imagined and tried to work on, he could never get done, has now been completed. And guess what? His neighbor is there, too, and together they cultivate the tree, and there are other trees, and, and, and people start coming from far and wide, and they, they sit under the tree. And broken and hurt people come to the tree and they're healed under the tree. Leaf by Niggle. The only thing left in this world was the little picture of the leaf, but for Niggle, he experienced the, complete, he experienced, excuse me, the completion of his work. Now, we're on the edge of comprehension here, right? When we start talking about heaven and what it's going to be like and the significance of it. Um, but the continuity that we see in the scripture between the, the new heaven and the new earth and, and this earth suggests that Tolkien is on to the right point here. He's on the right vein here. We, we end up with the same body in heaven. That's clear from what we've been reading. In Romans 8, as Pastor Andrews preached on last week, creation is set free, so there's continuity suggested in that. In Revelation 21, 22, when we, when we read that next week, we see that the, new, the city descends down to the earth. So there's continuity suggested in that. And so all of this leads us to the same conclusion that your life's work is not tossed in the bucket when you die, but somehow it gets woven in to eternity. And what God is doing for all eternity. 
I don't know how that happens. But it's what the Scripture teaches, and that changes the way that we think about what we do now. We're not just killing time, waiting till we die, to start something totally new and disconnected from what we've been doing here. So the resurrection has effect on our daily lives. Those things that we feel so vain, so pointless, we can't make a difference. We just keep trying and, and it just seems like nothing's happening. The end of the story has not been written yet. And God sees. But the other part I wanted to mention was worship. So it affects the way we think about our work. It also affects the way we think about worship. People's eternities are being shaped right now. We've been given maybe 80 years or so average to answer the question, who will you worship? Who will you worship? And the entire world, according to the Scriptures, is pointing towards God, to, that we would become worshipers of God. And anytime that you or, or I, anytime we help point somebody to God, then that work is special and good and lasting and eternal. This is what Paul is saying. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I want you to think about dogs. If the owner of a dog points to a bowl of food, there are two kinds of dogs. Some dogs will come up and lick the owner's finger. And some dogs have the capability or they have learned what pointing means. And they will go to the food and find nourishment. Now the dog that comes and licks the finger doesn't, I mean, gets a little salt maybe, but doesn't end up getting nourishment, right? The dog that understands the pointing goes to the source of nourishment. This entire world and this time frame that we have that God has given to us is His finger pointing. And there are a lot of people who are trying to find fulfillment and nourishment in this world only. And it's like licking the finger. But God is inviting you this morning and me this morning to look to where He's pointing. Where there's true nourishment. And where He's pointing is to the true source, the Creator God, who came in the flesh to redeem and then rose again to point the way. Jesus is the way. So the invitation this morning is to look, to seek, to pursue the kind of nourishment that you've always longed for and hoped for and wondered if was ever possible. The invitation this morning is for you to maybe get some new eyes, maybe to put on some glasses. That's what this morning might be about, to put on some glasses to see. 
that this entire world that God has created is pointing to something greater and grander. It is but a shadow of what is to come. And the one who leads the way to that world, because he is the way, is Jesus Christ. Because he has overcome sin, and because he has overcome death, and because he has the victory. And he is inviting you to join him this morning. Will you join him? Lord, we thank you for this moment. Some of us are exploring newly spiritual things or maybe exploring the scriptures in a new way and seeing this morning the opportunity to be shown the way. And with the faith that we have, we express to you that we want more. We want more of you. We want to know you more. We want to understand this way more fully. And so would you be so good and kind to reveal yourself fully? Would you reveal yourself in the scriptures that you've given to us? Some of us have been on a journey and things have crystallized this morning and we've decided that it is time for us to cross over that line and to make a step, take a decision and place our faith in the person of Jesus Christ. It seems crazy sometimes. It seems unexpected. Perhaps we didn't think that our life would go this way. But we're seeing just how good and powerful and glorious and gracious and merciful and kind and loving Jesus is. And so we're wanting to place our faith. And right as we sit here this morning, we know, God, that you are hearing in your omnipotence, in your omniscience, you're all-knowing, you're hearing our thoughts. And we, in this moment, can call out to you in faith and say, I believe in you. I believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And some of us have known you for a long time. We've been been living as Christians and and trying to align our lives with Jesus. And and yet there's a, a dryness and a dullness and a stagnation that has come from allowing our vision to be too much below the horizon of eternity. We just think about what's going on in this life and so often it feels vain. It feels like our efforts are in vain. And this morning you're inviting us to raise our gaze, to look beyond the horizon of this world and to peer deeply into that unknown but glorious future. Knowing that Jesus Christ is not an anomaly but just the first, the prototype of what's to come. And to allow the reality of that time perspective to shape the way that we live today. Thank you for meeting us in our need. Thank you that life does not have to be vain, in vain. Thank you that the winds of vanity are blown away by the winds of the Spirit and the work that you're doing in us.
And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.